Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long years. Stole million man's soul and faith. I was round when Jesus Christ had his moment of doubt and pain. Made damn sure that Pilate washed his hands and sealed his fate. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guess my name. <laughs> Chris, man. Actually, that's one of my favorite tracks of all time. And I always revert right back to the Stones version, but it's been done how many times, right? Yeah. Thousands of times, and you could probably find thousands of versions of it, man. Symphony for the Devil, it's a great track. It's a great song. Actually, it's a nice version that you did there, man. Thank you. Thank you, man. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming in. We're going we're gonna to have an interesting chat today, uh, electrical. we got a lot to talk about. There's a lot of stuff that I want to bring up and discuss. I know that the, the code is changing pretty quickly and uh, involving you guys. And it's kind of daunting huh, for an electrician today to be up to speed Yes. With everything that's changing. Am I stupid to say that weekly or monthly? Like it's changing a lot. Probably monthly, especially residential. It's constantly getting more complicated. I want to get into that whole world. So first of all, here, Chris is here from Richardson Electrical Services, uh, Navra, right? Yes. Uh, master electrician, 25 plus years. Uh, website is www.richardsonelectrical.ca. You can catch him at his email at chris at richardsonelectrical.ca and on Instagram, richardson underscore electrical underscore services. Quick shout out to Ontario Ready Mix for the tee that I'm wearing. It's actually a nice fitting tee. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. I want to get into this whole world of electrician and why you got into it. I know that off mic before we got started, we started talking about how your brother's not in it, but you're in it. Your dad started it back in the 90s. And then when did you get into it? So I've been involved since I was a kid, kind of helping. My dad was working for a So contractor. hang on, when you say a kid, there's construction when I was a kid, and then there's reality when I was a kid. So construction, when I was a kid, means literally I'm in diapers and I'm learning from what's going on. Okay, so I was <laughs> eight, nine years old. Okay, all right. Ten. Cool. And my dad was working for a contractor, and then he started doing his own thing kind of on the weekends, doing his own side jobs. And I'd come along, tag along, fetch tools, fetch materials, kind of keep him company a little bit. And it just kind of grew. And in high school, I'd be more on the tools, helping him with projects. And he always kind of ran as a, this part-time thing. It's been around forever, but he always, he worked for a contractor, then he became uh, a maintenance electrician. His whole background in Europe was, was industrial. So he did a lot of uh, maintenance work. Uh, he went to Iraq overseas to build a chemical plant. Oh, wow. So that's most of his background. And then when he immigrated to Canada, he got into more of the commercial residential work. What do you like? I know you guys handle all three, but which one do you prefer and which one does he prefer? Um, I don't know. I, I like to mix it up. I don't want to be stuck doing residential all the time or just commercial. Like sometimes we'll go into a bit of troubleshooting in a plant, some, uh, like a motor or something, or wire up a new piece of equipment or fix an e-stop or some electronics on a conveyor belt. Um, other times we're just doing like a storefront or something in a commercial or we'll do a renovation in a residential setting. We'll do a custom build or an addition. So it's always, it's always varying. Is it easier for an industrial electrician to transition over to the commercial and residential versus the other way around? Yeah, definitely. Because there's so much going on in the industrial platform. Like you really have to know your stuff at that point, right? Yes. 
I kind of regret, I did mechanical engineering in college, and I kind of regret it that I didn't do electrical because I would learn about PLCs and more of the, I guess, entry-level university theory that you wouldn't get. What's a PLC, school. just for us layman's, including myself? What's a PLC? I forget the acronym by this. Basically, it's, uh, it's, programming, it's a programming language to control equipment. Okay. So you can write a program that will control different functions of a machine, where it, when it starts, when it stops, how fast it, it moves. Wow. So it's, it's commonly used in, in, in industry. And then is it also used in the commercial side of business as well, too? Or no, it's too no, extreme at that point, right? No, it's mostly for industrial settings. Now, am I also fair to say, Chris, that there's a lot of money in industrial? I would, yeah, I would think so. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's such a specialty, right? Not too many guys want to touch it. What's the, what's the fear? It's just the responsibility? Part of it, yeah. Part of it, you need to have, I guess, a little bit better education. Um, when I was in college, I met a bunch of uh, the guys that were doing the electrical technology program were gearing to be electricians. That's the one that goes straight into the industrial sector. They were just looking at it that way for what, monetary reasons? Or were they looking at it just for the challenge of the trade? I guess that's just the path that they, they were on. Okay. Which I thought was interesting because most guys just kind of get into it, right? And just get on the tools and they start. Are there a lot of kids getting into electrical because of that? Like, are they just looking at the opportunities that there's so many? I'm they're looking sure, for us, right? They're looking for yes, you guys. They are. Okay. But if you think about like, you know, I also worked in consulting engineering for a long time. And I think in high schools, everyone's still geared to go to university. It's yeah. not really, you know, trades aren't really talked about enough, in my opinion. So I want to shift gears a tiny bit. So when you were as a kid, eight, nine years old, starting out, did you like this like? I liked the construction side of things. I enjoyed it, but I hated electrical because I didn't understand it. You so know? you didn't, you didn't, okay, so what didn't you understand? I mean, you're a, you're a kid at that time. Yeah, but like, I mean, you see, I see my dad going through boxes and messing around with wires and things. And I understand, like, I understand the theory, and it just turned me off that I understand what he was doing specifically, right? Okay. And then at what point did you grasp it? What was the light bulb moment? Uh, when I was a teenager, I guess. I was learning more and more. And then it got even better when I went to trade school. Okay. And which school did you go to? I went to Humber. Okay. And how was that experience? Good? It was good, yeah. Yeah? It was good. That's after you did the mechanical engineering? Oh, yes. That was way, way after. Because um, my dad didn't want me to go into the trades. He was pushing me to go to school. Why is that generation not wanting the kids to get into the I trade? I don't know. I don't know. My, my thought process is because they work so hard to give you guys a better life, so they don't want you to be doing this, I to think, work this hard. Yes, I figured they assume there's a better way of making money than working physically, right? Okay, so I mean, let's talk about the numbers, all right? So electrician, you go to trade school, so you didn't have to go to mechanical, but mechanical engineering actually helped you probably as a tradesperson as well. Yes. You get a better understanding. It's almost like you became an architect before you started building homes, right? Like yes. there's a connection point at that. Um, but I mean, electrician gets started. How many hours do you need to for your apprentice and everything? Like that? 9,000 hours. Yeah, that's a magic number, right? right? So now you get started, you're a kid. Now you could be any age if you wanted to drop out of school and get right into the apprenticeship and then start the program or you have I to think be it. You can, you can start off in high school. When I was in high school, you can do a co-op program Okay. at 16 years old. And those co-op hours go towards your apprenticeship. Okay. And then through that, you can probably find an employer to hire you in the summertime. Was it hard for you to find an employer? Um, well, I just worked with my dad, so I didn't really have to look for it. Okay. It was easy. Okay. But 
other friends in, in my school, like one guy got into mechanics. He worked at a, a Volkswagen dealership. Co-op. As a co-op, and then later led to like a job as an entry-level. How many hours are you allowed to do for co-op? Uh, I forget how many semesters they allowed. But okay. it, it would be one semester of high school. Okay. Was, was a block of that. It would be like a course in high school. And you're working five, five days a week, Monday to Friday kind of thing. Yes. I forget how it was. I don't know if it was part-time or full-time. No, I'm just asking because I want to share it because I know that St. Augustine has reached out and I'm trying to connect electricians, HVAC, uh, framers, uh, and one plumber, right? So there are kids in that school. I mean, it's a trade school here in the greater Toronto area, uh, and she has a good pool of kids that want to get into specific trades. The majority of the kids do want to get into the framing side of the business, mm -hmm. and then the next follow-up, I'd say, would be electrical. Uh, followed by HVAC and then plumbing. Now, HVAC, a lot of HVAC companies are reluctant to take them on because they've tried it out and there's so much going on in HVAC that it's it's very intimidating. If you think that you were intimidated when you are a kid and looking at electrical, it's times three at that point for HVAC, right? Yeah. So, okay, so you do the co-op and then you get in there and then you finally connected the theory to the practical and that's when you got it. Yes. And that felt right. And that felt right, yeah. Okay, and then at the, was your dad a good teacher to you? At times. At times oh. he is, at times. Strict, right? Yes. Okay. But also he's more of a doer than a teacher. You know, he's more. So just watch me. Yes. Has he brought on anybody else other than family or he hasn't no. brought on? Okay. And it's just, a, it's just the two of you guys, right? It's the two of us. My brother comes in and out here and there when he. He finished one program in college. He didn't pursue it, so he was working with him for a full for a few years to make some money, and then kind of figure out what he wanted to do. So he went back to school. Okay. And he just works in, during the summer to make some money for school, and he goes back to school. Got it. Okay. And then. Uh, so he's one of those. One of those. Yeah. <laughs> Part timer. <laughs> but at least he's like I get the sense he might actually get into the business with you, right? Because I, mean, I, I keep telling you, hey man, keep it in your back pocket. Yeah. You never know what happens in life. How young is your dad? Uh, he'll be 70 in April. Okay, so he's looking to possibly... Yeah, he, he was relieved when I got my master's license. Okay. Fucking finally. <laughs> <laughs> Did it take a while? Because um, I, I kept kind of cycling between consulting and the trade and... Um, Why were you doing that, though? What was the thing like... So let's go back. Um, yeah. So I finished high school and he was pushing me to go to school, so I went to college. Uh, I finished this three-year technology, mechanical engineering design drafting program. And I was in a warehouse loading trailers, looking for a job and applying, and I was almost going to give up and go into the trade. And by chance, I got into mining. Okay. Two guys interviewed me. They kind of took me under their wing, and I, that's how I got my start. Okay. So I worked on a $7 billion copper and, uh, sorry, not copper, nickel and cobalt project. Were you administrative only, or were you actual practical? Oh, I was practical. So I, I oh, was really? A, I was this, a this is a tough job, by the way, because I know a few friends that have gotten into it at you know, West. It's tough on so many levels. Like, good money, like, ridiculous money, but tough on so many levels. Yeah. So I was a junior draftsman, essentially, a okay. designer. So okay. a designer is a draftsman. So I'd be doing all the 2D drafting nobody wanted to do and that kind of stuff, and then... I was good at good with computers, so I picked up the modeling software very quickly. And the way they would work is they would create a 3D model of the building, of this of the plant that they're gonna build. Yeah. And you populate the plant with all the steel, all the equipment, all the piping, 
all the ducting, all the cable trays. Wow. And you, you build this model out so that you can see how much space everything takes up. And kind of, and then from this model, you eventually cut drawings, and that's what you use to build it. How precise are you? Pretty precise. You're, you're, you're going to the millimeter. Wow. Based off of drawings, based on like the site conditions, and this is what we need to build, and then you're, there's a lot of components. There's a lot of missing, like moving parts in this whole yes. structure, right? So I was, well, I was a layout designer. So this role, you're kind of the, the GC of, of the drafting world. Yeah, yeah. You're kind of, you're, you're coordinating the other disciplines. So we would come on usually first on the project, the process, the chemical engineers would design the chemical process of how to refine the ore. Okay. And then based on that, we know what equipment we need. We kind of size the building and start placing equipment, setting out the floor levels, the elevations. Uh, and then slowly more disciplines would come on. The structural guys would come in and replace our cartoon model of the, of the structural steel, start sizing the members and everything else. Piping guys would start coming in, running pipes. We'd leave, we'd allocate space and corridors for them to run all their piping. Um, you, some, so it depends what you're doing. Um, like on potash, there's a lot of dust. So there's a lot of dust suppression. Yeah. You can collect all the dust and then recycle it through the process. Yeah. Um, and we kind of coordinate everybody. And then slowly the model, first it's, it's a cartoon, then you get better information about the equipment and vendor models, and then you build it out, build it out, then it gets more and more detailed, and eventually it's ready for construction. Are you getting boots on the ground trades coming back to you and saying this is not connecting right, this is not fitting right? See, that's the, the problem is there's a disconnect between the design office and the field because only a select few at the end of the project get to go to site. It's usually the engineers, not the, not the draftsmen. Wouldn't it make more sense that the you office think. go to the field, the office yes. become the field? You would think. <laughs> I'm just... No, like, from experience, the best engineers were the ones that had site experience. Yeah. Because... Especially when, when it's such a complicated task. Because when there's a problem, how can you resolve it if you have no experience? Yes. And I'm sure the same thing translates to construction. It's exactly the same thing. You have designers drawing up houses, buildings... They can't even measure things properly. Yeah. So it works on so many levels. So there's a disconnect. But the problem is that I guess you get those types of occupations that are attached to the construction industry refuse, I guess, for a lack of a better word, to get on the job site. Like, I mean, are they afraid of putting on a pair of safety boots and walking on a job site? Is that what it it's, is? It's usually the company being reluctant to send people. because These mines are all in remote places, typically. Like that cobalt mine is, or the processing plant is Madagascar. Wow. So they get people over there and everything else. It's, it's a big expense. So they usually hire people that have construction experience and they just send them straight to site. So has the time changed these days with virtual? I mean, can we FaceTime these situations? Or I don't know. Like So at the tail end of my career, before I, I left, um, there was a lot of video conferencing, video calling. So the technology has made it easier. But it's not the same, though, as it's being the on the site. No. Yeah. But, uh, like, I mean, like I said, usually reluctant to send people. But the last project I worked on, the company is quite ambitious because they're building a virtual 3D model of the plant. So you can put on the VR glasses and walk around the plant. Which is great. But they're also trying to bypass the whole drafting process of making drawings. They want to hand over oh, that makes no sense. a 3D model to a contractor. I don't agree Here with you that. Here you go. Yeah. I, 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 yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. Like, and that's what I tried to say. You know, who's going to 
put on, you know, start measuring dimensions in a CAD model instead of having a set of drawings on site. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Even in the virtual world, you somehow, you, sh you should pop up the drawings at that point and you're there and, and, and kind of connected as well. But they sold the client on the idea that we can save so much money, so many hours on drafting. Oh, that's a marketing push. That's crap. Push it's, it out to, that's to, a headache. to the contractor on site. I know, but then it's left as per, which is what we've seen on drawings over and over, which I'm not a fan of. I get tired of that stamp, as per contractor on site. I don't want that responsibility. If you're drawing the drawings, do the job. Do the 100%. whole job. Yeah. Right? Literally, you're drawing the drawings. You should be giving the scope. You should be giving the blueprint. But if you have to go out to the field and verify something, you should be in the field verifying yeah, I it. agree, 100%. Okay, so we, we're getting all over the place, but 9,000-hour student, teenager, you get on board with an electrician, you start sweeping floors your first week or whatever it is. You get started, right? What should a good apprentice begin with? Because like, you're going to start taking, even with your dad moving on, you're going to start taking on an apprentice. You're going to have to take on to continue growing the business, right? Yes. Well, so what are you looking for? A willingness to learn, um, interest, um, you know, someone that's that's mentally present, not on their phone, not, you know. I think there should be a bylaw in ESA that you're not allowed any phones unless you're doing some sort of sourcing out for the scope of work. Yeah. I think they're, all social media should be just all shut down when you're working. Like I had a friend working for me last year when I got really busy and he's an industrial electrician so he doesn't really touch you know commercial residential and he was great because he's curious he'd be challenging me on the code why are we doing this that's wrong no it's not we, we you know you go home read the book come back to me the next day <laughs> it was great that's what you want you want someone curious and, and and interesting and constantly challenging you right i just found out last week or the week before that esa has their own podcast right now I heard about this, yes. Yeah, so a lot of electricians are listening to it. They're short little um, shows, like 20 minutes long or something like that, and they specifically talk about one detail, and they have an actual ESA rep or an inspector speaking about it and then sharing the information, which I think is a brilliant idea. That's a very good idea, yes. Right. Anyone can consume it. You're commuting to work. You can listen to it. Yep. You know. Yeah, especially if they start building up a library and all of a sudden you can source that out and go, listen, we're building this, and new guy, have a listen to this just to kind of get an idea of what we're going to do and then go. So that way he could problem solve because I think that's what I like seeing best from electricians is that when you guys are, there's always pairs that are working together because you always need a second person and you guys are always bouncing ideas off each other to try to get the scope of work completed properly. Yes. Right. Which is great. Right. And I'd love to see that more in um, all the other trades as well. But there's a lot of guys that love being lone wolves too right i know hvac guys i'm starting to see lone wolves plumbers are definitely lone wolves uh electricians are probably the only ones that are doing like a dual kind of batman and robin thing right yeah it's usually an older guy younger guy or yeah apprentice and a journeyman so the kid you're bringing them on you're looking for those qualities in them they got nine thousand hours nine thousand hours is basically how many years that you're going to be working probably five years five years at that point you can write for your master's then no that's a journeyman ticket that's a journeyman ticket that's to close your apprenticeship, become a journeyman. That's your 309A okay. or 442 for industrial. Um, and then you have to work as a journeyman for three years before you can write your master's. Okay. And you have to submit some kind of a referral to ESA that you worked for this company as a journeyman for so many years. You've done this and that. And then you're ready to become a master. 
And then the test itself, what is involved there? The test was a mix of, it was less theory-based. Um, there was three parts. There was theory, there was like business practices, and like safety, workplace safety. Okay. So there's like 30% each. I forget the percentage, they're broken up, but basically those are the, the three. Whereas the journeyman exam was very technical, very, you have to find uh, everything, like you have to answer the questions, everything's in the cold book. You got you to know how to use the cold book and find the information to answer the questions. So how can you, going back to the beginning of the show, they're asking a question that may have already changed. Well, yeah, that would be relevant to the exam at the time. So you'd have to keep up with whatever's changed currently, and then when it's asked, then that's the answer you should give. Yes. So, I mean, I wrote in, I was using 2015. Cold a lot has changed. And, a and lot has changed. Right? Yeah. So how did, how did you, okay, well, I, how does one get caught up? Like, how do, how do you keep up to date? Um, I mean, I have electrician friends, so we, you know, if we hear something new is on the horizon, we kind of keep each other informed, bounce ideas off of each other. Um, sometimes the ESA inspector will give you a heads up. Like, beginning of last year, uh, I had two houses on the go at the same time, and the rule came in with stapling in the center of the stud. Uh, that whole, what is that thing called? That little uh, clip thing? I don't know what it's called, but Okay, yeah. so that came in last year? So they were... Like, we were doing the rough in, in February, March, and he said, I'll pass you now, but starting from May onward, this won't pass. So here's, Chris, this is my problem that I have. Uh, I have lots of problems with the ESA. Just, Simon, I know you're listening. Um, when you're doing a retro, mm -hmm. all the rules about stapling and about placement and how it should be positioned into the wall cavity and everything go right out the window. Yes, because you're fishing blindly through a wall. Exactly, right? So that's still safe, though, to have those cables dangling inside the cavity. I but it's not safe if it's new construction. If you don't touch the, the drywall or plaster on the wall, then technically they're not going to be damaged, right? So the concern is that these cables on a new construction situation might get damaged, right? Because I was told that the reason that whole clip system came in was, and I'm not pointing fingers, the drywallers. So the drywallers were just burning through their trade, working, and they were ripping wires because they were too close to the edge of the surface. And then you were damaging wire after wire after wire. So all of a sudden, the ESA came in, and you guys can send your letters and correct me all you want, but this is what I've heard. The reason why this clip system down the middle of the stud came in is because of drywallers. Well, if you think about the ESA, there must have been enough fires or problems from the insurance companies that it got pushed into law. Yeah. You would think, right? But but it is also just being a little bit overly protective, right? Yes. I mean, if you think about arc vaults, which nobody likes, it used to be just the bedrooms, which made sense. Can we, like, can we get rid of them? Like, I really do not like arc vault. I don't give a shit. Arc vaults were designed because people were buying properties and, I guess, converting them to dwellings that were shoving beds right next to receptacles, and then they were putting the Christmas tree assortment right into that receptacle, right next to fabric that's probably got enough polyester in it to ignite, and then catching on fire, and then boom, there it is. And, and so, okay, why don't you start blaming the homeowner for not putting those beds so close to these receptacles? You're not allowed to do that, right? Yes. I also heard uh, there's issues with space heaters. 
people plugging in. That was the other thing. So, but on the boxes, it's clearly, but nobody reads. Like nobody reads. It clearly says that this requires a single 15 amp for this one heater. But everyone, Christmas tree light again, and just put it all together. Now you got to. And there's a reason why the wire is hot. Yes. When you plug those things in, it's not because there's a heat source it's attached to. No, it's because of the amount of current that's coming through that line. Yeah. And that's where it could possibly go as well. I agree with you. But I mean, so sh- how do we change? You don't change. You just keep on changing these rules in the ESA and then you keep on forcing. Arc faults are so expensive to begin with. Yes. They're so sensitive. You can't even run a vacuum on them. So it's like, what's the purpose of these receptacles now in a bedroom application? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, I mean, okay. What, what, why do you need uh, a three-in-one carbon smoke and strobe in the bedroom? Oh, okay. Let's get into that one. Okay. So, if you're ep- epileptic, yes, it's a major issue. Yes. But then they did, I guess, uh, data analysis at that point. The, the amount of people that are um, going to be affected by the strobe is far fewer than the people that won't be affected by the strobe. So we might as well go with the strobe. I don't think that you need the strobe personally because that strobe is blinding. Yes, but you need to consider deaf people as well, right? You do, but there's got to be a different way to do it. In today's day and age of all this kind of technology that we have, there's got to be a different way to do it other than a blinding light to everybody. So even even deaf people, like they'll see the light, but then... you. you it's it's white like it's like it's almost like snow blindness right like it's like when when the house is dark there's nothing on and all of a sudden the alarm goes off and that strobe goes off you can't see because the that light is so bright that is if you've been asleep and it's yeah the thing you see you're adjusting yeah so i don't know if it should maybe be a different color a blue or a red or something like it's just instead of that bright white light because it's hard to navigate through your house when that goes off but then what they change those rules, right? So it's carbon and smoke and now the strobe, right? And that, again, was for, I guess, deaf people. But then they're ignoring other people that are going to be affected by that. Yeah, That's not going to change anytime soon. No, I don't think so. And now, I guess they recent, not recently, what, 10 years or so, they made the whole thing that every single closed room, so every bedroom, every floor, um, that all requires all interconnected yes. alarms, right? Yep. So common areas of... Ho- Always don't require a strobe. It's just mainly bedrooms. Have you heard of um, the the suppression uh, guardian? I think it is. There's a suppression uh, smoke alarm, right? So it's actually like a, a fire extinguisher. So it, it looks like a smoke alarm, but on the back side of it that goes inside the cavity uh, of the joist cavity uh, has like a little mini extinguisher on it. So it only goes off if there's an actual fire, and it will actually spray a fire extinguisher mist, and you can just vacuum that stuff up and prevent a fire so this was designed specifically for like cooking areas that have gotten out of hand and all of a sudden you start panicking and then you're you're one of those few people that are stupid enough to put water on it and that just becomes worse so it's actually a smart idea and but i'm wondering why can't we get those kinds of devices instead but i guess these these alarms are designed just strictly to see if there's smoke in the house and then you're awake to get you out of the house because houses of today will burn 10 times faster than houses of yesterday yeah that's the problem but they're not going to change any of that. What else is being changed in the code these days? I guess, like you said at the start of the show, most of it is residential. It's being most changed. of it is residential. I don't think commercial has been touched really for decades. Because like, it's pretty routine, right? Yeah. Like a warehouse space, an office space, all kinds of stuff like that, right? But in residential, what other kind of little things are changing? 
Uh, the last major thing that I came across was the stapling. I'm not sure if there's anything else of recently that's been implemented this year. So are guys liking it? Are the electrician, the community, are they liking those clips and stapling all the... Uh, probably not. I mean, the guys that are really messy, probably not. Um, it, it just, it's more time consuming now. Right? Yeah. To get everything centered or as close as possible to the middle. Yeah, it just it makes the roughing process a little bit longer. How much longer are we talking about here? I don't think it's anything major, but it's just I'm I'm a neat freak anyways as it is. I spend too much time stapling stuff, but <laughs> So do you have one of those new staplers? No, I don't. You don't have one of those? Yeah. I've asked a few guys, you know. I saw that yeah, so I'm working with uh with Matt and James there from uh M and J Electric and they they showed it to me and I saw it and I was like, That's pretty impressive. Uh, I know Milwaukee's coming out with one right now. So I, I hear the, the DeWalt one doesn't isn't fully accepted by ESA because the staples are not for NMD or like what we call Romex here. It's a slightly different acronym in the U.S. Oh, I didn't know that. That's what I heard from one electrician. He was saying, he's like, hold off for the Milwaukee because their staples are apparently going to be ESA approved 100%. I could be wrong in this. But so what's what the heard. difference between the staples that DeWalt staples are not doing that Milwaukee is? Because they're approved for the U.S.-based Romex, whatever. It's a different acronym. I, I don't remember what it is. Okay, so what's the difference between U.S. Romex and Canadian Romex? I don't know. Isn't the sheathing and the diameter and the copper, isn't it all the same? I would think it's the same. I think they don't really use 14-gauge much in some states. I think they use more 12-gauge. In residential? Yeah, I think it's so. It's all 12-gauge? I think so. I'm not 100% okay, no, sure. We but I've seen like guys running 12-gauge everywhere for where we would run 14-gauge. Interesting. So I don't know if that's California or certain states. I'm not sure. Now, California's got a bunch of building rules that I still don't understand, nor do I ever want to understand. But... Um, okay, so technically speaking, you're saying that the wall one is not ESA approved. Not 100%. So if you get an electrician who buys that thinking, well, here's a new tool and I can use it. It's great, 200 bucks bare tool, and now all of a sudden I can staple everything. An inspector can come in and say, oh, hang on, it's not. Potentially, yeah. It also depends on the inspector, right? Some are okay with it, some are not. I've had some interesting discussions. So, okay, what would the argument be on their side that that staple, what's the purpose of a staple? To hold the cable. Just to secure the cable inside the cavity. Yes. And I've actually tried to remove one of those staples on my own. It's more difficult than the traditional hammer-in staple, right? Yes. So if the purpose of that staple is to hold the cable in place, what's the problem that ESA has with the wall one? I think they might think that it'll damage the outer sheeting. Of the cable. Of the cable. I could see that because it is pretty snug. Right. So I think that's part of the issue. Okay. So I don't know if the Milwaukee ones will have a different maybe coating on the staple where it, it touches the, the cable so that it doesn't. It's an interesting tool because it's actually uh, depth sensitive. So it, it, it recognizes what you're about to staple and then it uh, plunges the staple at a certain way, uh, which is kind of cool. Um, but I guess Milwaukee's is probably stepping theirs up a little bit more. Probably. I, what I heard is it's going to be a lot more compact. It's going to be a little bit smaller on the M12 platform, I think. Um, so it's going to be more compact, whereas the DeWalt, from what I've seen, is a little bit bigger. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I would say maybe about 8 inches in depth, maybe 7.5 inches in depth. 
it's not that big which is not crazy you can still fit that in between uh, 12 inch on center joists that's not a problem you'll definitely fit it within 16 on center studs uh, so making it tighter I mean at that point okay how tight are you going to make these things you might as well just design a tomahawk stapler and just uh, make it pneumatic at that point and then just shoot them all in at that point right so but interesting okay so uh, I want to get back to the kid now. So the kid, um, three years to get the master's, writes the test, three stages in the test. One is actually, it's kind of interesting. Now. One is actual practical, one is business, and one is safety. Yes. So the business and the safety is applicable to any trade in the business. Yes. yes. So why is, he a ma- is it ESA that yes. governs that? Yes. They govern it, right? So why are they, why isn't, or here's a better question. Why is the OBC not doing the exact same thing for every other trade where you should be tested for your business and safety as well too? Yeah, that's a good question. Like I don't know, like plumbers, for example, once they get their journeyman ticket, they can run a business or do they have to have become a master plumber? Because for us, we can't operate on our own unless we become a master. Yeah, or you work with a master. Or you work for a master. For a master. So with the plumber, I think it's the same thing. Okay. I, I, the plumber's going to have to write the letters and just come in, right? So I, I, I think it's the same thing that you can't just open up a shop and start. You need to still write your ticket and then have it. So now you're a master plumber and now you can run everything. Because in the 90s and early 2000s, you could. as a journeyman. That's what my dad did. He got his ticket when he came over. He approved his hours, his apprenticeship. He wrote the exam and he was a journeyman. And he could open and run a business. As long as they have insurance and everything else, you're okay. And then later on in life, he had to go back and then now upgrade to a master's license or he would have to close his business. Really? Yeah. I so don't know, I don't know when that came in. I think in the mid 2010s, something like that. I don't remember the exact. Date. So that, that, that to me just smells like cash grab, right? That just smells like someone came in and just trying to change the rules, which is what's frustrating to me where you've got so many immigrants coming into this country that have the skills from over there. And I've, I'm telling you right now in Europe, I'm going to say electricians are better in Europe. Am I going to say that? Because sure. it's, it's, it's done differently. I've seen the way it's done, and I personally think it's better. It's all done to a source, and then it's branched off to what you have to do it. Here, we're all going directly to each source, right? I, I like the way the Europeans do it more than the way North Americans do it, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to say that the electrician coming from there here has more knowledge so then why do they need to be tested to our standards that are below their standards plus their education system is different like from what i heard in poland you finish high school say you want to be an engineer or or uh, an electrician you still go to the same technical college for two three years and then from there you can become a tradesperson or you go to university so you have some fundamental building blocks before you go to university every student's like that think so depending on on what career you choose that's smart but i think anything engineering technical it's that route maybe it's changed since then but that's how it worked so your dad must have been frustrated because he's he's been doing it for x amount of years decades and all of a sudden he comes in and they change the rules and now he's got to upgrade his status but he already knows how to do all this stuff yes but just and i mean there's a cost associated at time and then he had work and then all of a sudden he can't move forward on projects unless he does this so he's he's being tied to do he had this to shut down for a while because he couldn't work legally anymore right cuz you know he couldn't pull a permit anymore wow so he took a prep course um, 
that kind of prepare them for it. And then they teach you, you know, part of the course is the business practices, tenders, safety, that kind of stuff. And then a bit of focus on the on the code again. But when I wrote, I found the the journeyman exam was, was much harder than, than the master's. Why? Um, just the level of technical questions on the journeyman exam was brutal. Like you had to, I studied my ass off for it. And it was pretty challenging. Is it an open book test? Yes. Because it kind of makes sense because in the field you're allowed to have a book. How you're can you memorize a book this thick? <laughs> you don't memorize and it. Tables and, like, yeah. you know, and you don't know what they're going to throw at you, right? It might be something you haven't worked on or ever touched, but you still need to be able to find the answer for it. Interesting. Now, what makes a good electrician? Because you're not born good electricians, right? No. Um, Despite some of them that think they are, right? Yes. <laughs> um, I think you need to have critical thinking. Um, you have to have a good understanding of the code book and know your way around it. I think that's a fundamental thing. That's what they tell you in trade school. Read that thing. You're on the toilet. Read it. Read it. Read it. Read it. And it's true. The more you read it, the more you, you, yeah. you know. Um, and critical thinking because, you know, you're going to a finished house and stuff's not working. You know, everything's painted. Everyone's looking at you. What the hell did you do? What's going on? Yeah, you guys are problem solvers. Eh? Like you're trying to figure out, I guess at first you're looking around to see which trade damaged one of my wires that's not working. And now I'm the one that's responsible to find out where the damage is and fix it with as few holes as possible. Yes. That's your job. Yes. Which is not really fair because we should all care not to damage these things. I, I'm I mean, paranoid that way. Shit happens. It is what it is. It does, right? yeah. But I mean, yeah, it sucks when like, you know, everything's primed and getting ready for final paint, trims going in, and then like you're, you have to rip off baseboards because you got to fish a wire. Do, pull something out of, out of your hat to be able to make it work. Yeah. So, but that, that's part of the job. But I mean, so how does, how do you handle that situation? How do you handle it for a new guy? Because every Every new electrician is going to be in that situation one time or another, if not many times during their career. Like, I guess the first thing is don't stress out. Yes. Just work the problem, right? So yes. like, like the code book and everything like that, just problem solve. Yes. You're basically dissecting all the variables that are potentially causing this and then go down that list. You have to trace it. You check every junction point, see where you have power, where it's supposed to be. Kind of try to remember how you ran all your feeders, how you distributed the circuits. Um, I think a good practice is to do a lot of pictures and video, which is something it's I don't do great, enough. That's a great practice, yeah. Because, you know, you can always go back to the roughing stage before drywall went up and, okay, I ran this here and there, roughly should be here, you know. Um, they have tools you can trace and you can you know, trace a wire and stuff like that, but, I mean, sometimes you sometimes it's an easy fix, sometimes it's not. I know, I know there's that joke, you know, you guys are not magicians, you're electricians, right? So it's just like, there's always a problem and we expect you guys to solve it right away, right? I've always given every electrician I've ever worked with, whatever, take as much time as you need. Just let's try to figure this out, what the root of it is, and then we'll go from there, right? Yeah. And, and, and if we find out it was a certain trade that damaged it, there's no scolding. There's no, there's no reason no, at that it, point for that, right? No, there's no point of getting angry and pointing yeah. fingers like, uh, or getting, you know, or getting upset, like just you got to find the solution. So I want to, so the kid goes in and now you're working with them. They write their masters. So that's a lengthy process. 9,000 hours. So that's, that's eight years. Eight years of your life. 
So even if you come out as an 18, 19 year old, you're starting, you're getting into your late twenties at that point, And now you're a ma- master electrician cost wise. When you're working as a journeyman and you're working for those years, money wise, what are you guys making average? If you're in a private company, I don't know, between 30 to $45 an hour, it ranges depending how much the guys are being paid. Union is probably in the fifties. I'm not sure. And then getting that master's license, you start bumping that up to what? Um, I don't know what, what masters charge these days, but I would say between 70 to $90 an hour in that range, okay. I would think. Yeah. Maybe so that's more. what you can expect after eight years of working in the field, on the books, writing tests, learning, talking with others, checking it out, and, and basically educating yourself for that whole period of time. And that's where you get to. Now, at that point, how do you expand your business or how do you increase your your dollar value over the years? You start getting into industrial, you start getting into commercial, you start getting into different fields. So you start educating yourself more. Yes. I think most guys stick to residential and commercial or one or the other. Um, some guys almost specialize in industrial. Uh, we're just kind of a, a unique situation because my dad's whole career was mostly industrial. So if anyone asks him to do something, it's not a problem for him. Sure. Cause he knows all levels of it, right? What does he prefer out of the three? Uh, I don't know. He he likes residential at times. He likes industrial at times. I think he he probably gravitates to industrial. Okay, because he just he knows it. Yes, and there's less rules and nonsense. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because there's so many rules and nonsense in residential. I think. Okay, what's what's riskier? Someone living in a house, or people working in a workplace? In a workplace. Yeah. Like I mean, you're going to. If you go into an industrial plant, you know, especially if it's operating and you're trying to work off of a scissor lift and not drop something on someone's head, and yeah, it's a different ball game than being in a in a residential site. I love all those warehouses because I've been through so many of them, and just either for tours or for product and just checking out stuff. And they've got all the painted yellow lines, and they're always telling you to stay within those yellow lines, right? You already know where I go. I go outside of the yellow lines just to test myself, whatever. But I mean, it's kind of, I think it's foolish because. You can get hurt in the yellow line or out of the yellow line. Yes. It's a warehouse. It's, there's there's machinery going around. There's all kinds of interesting things going on. Um, there's dam- dangerous chemicals going on. There's all kinds of stuff. It's so risky there. So I don't understand why they're not as strict there as they are in residential. But that's the ESA. That's the ESA. Yeah. ESA is an interesting entity. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, had, uh, I had one discussion. One house we were doing... Uh, I was 20 millimeters short of being a meter in front of the panel because it's a small existing room. And he busted your chops for that? 100%. He's like, when they come back for the... Because I think it was a young guy. He was fresh. He was fresh. Yeah, I like those young inspectors. And he was like, you know, you got to rip this wall down. It's an existing closet in the basement. No one's demoing this. The rest of the house is being done from scratch. So why was it not grandfathered in then if it was existing? I don't know. But I had another situation... Uh, we're doing a service upgrade in a house in uh, Etobicoke. Okay. And it was an even more narrow room. And it was on one of the, the side walls. So I'm like, well, I'm going to put it on the, on the exterior wall so we have this one meter distance and we don't have this problem again. The inspector comes by, I don't give a shit. It was fine where it was. <laughs> but it was an older guy with more experience and like, so like, how do you win? You know? Like, so see, that, that's what I, okay, so it's at the discretion of the inspectors. So, I mean, there's rules. I get the one meter in front of the wall, distance, space, right? 
But if one is saying, it's fine, I don't care, it's good. And another's by the book and saying, oh, no, it's not good. You're going to have to rip this wall down. Like, how about the young guy have a little bit of common sense and understand the job site and try to understand that that wall was never moved. It was never built. It was never part of the process. So why dismiss this or why put you in that situation? I don't know. I don't know. And then uh, another guy came back for the final and didn't even look at the panel. Look at that. Yeah. I get like, okay, inspectors are interesting because sometimes you'll, you're always tense about that day, about any yeah. inspector coming by. But sometimes they don't even go thoroughly through everything. They just assume that it's okay, and then they just get out of there, and that's done. But, I mean, stuff wasn't really inspected. Uh, one of the jobs, the guy was extremely thorough. He was very knowledgeable, very thorough. He was testing every plug that it's on arc fault. He had a tester that would trip to that specific breaker. He'd be checking everything. He was very thorough. I wonder if inspectors and their significant others get tired of arc faults in their own home. <laughs> That's a good question. I bet you they do. I yeah. bet you they hate it. They probably just like, I can't stand these things because their significant other probably wants to use a vacuum or wants to use something in their, the bedroom and they can't because it keeps tripping. And then I recently found out because we've had so many electricians on the show is like, a breaker, when it trips, it has a countdown. Yes. It has a lifespan. Yes. If you keep tripping it, it wears out and it goes bad. And it's going to trip all the time. So Which was that done right? by a purpose by the company? So then you're forced to buy another R-fault because R-fault breakers are not cheap, by the way. No, they're not. They're very expensive. Even in today, you know, post-pandemic days, they're still ridiculously expensive. Yeah. So, but homeowners don't know that this trips and all of a sudden it it's on its way to failing at that point. Yeah, they'll just go and reset it and start vacuuming again until it blows, right? And then you'll, you'll get a call, you know, a couple of months later and say, oh, the circuit's not working anymore. Because the breaker's not working anymore. The breaker's not working. Now we need to change the breaker. And that's going to be like 200 bucks for a breaker, and then it's going to be a $200 service call. And then Now, uh, let's say it's, uh, it's an appliance in the kitchen that's a plug-in, like a, like a Emila dishwasher. They're okay. all plug-in. Okay. Um, what are you supposed to do? It's every time you put on a load of the of dishes on, it trips. Is that supposed to be on an arc fault as well too? If it's an appliance that has a cord and it's plugged in, it should be on an arc fault. If it's hardwired, then no. You bring up a good point, man. That's my understanding because, because we yeah. had a situation where you know the customer had the technician come out. He took apart the machine. He tested everything from A to Z. You know, and he put it back together. He's like, the machine is fine. There's nothing wrong with this appliance. And he's like, he's like, your power source is the issue. And then if you go to ESA, they'll tell you, well, take it up with CSA. And then what are you going to do? You're going to tell Miela to go to CSA and, like, make their appliance work with these arc folds? Like, I, I don't understand what we're supposed to do. You, well, technically speaking, that appliance can't be sold because it's already been tested by CSA. So then it's fine. So it's fine. But did they test it with an arc fault? Probably not. Okay, so arc faults just Ontario or is it Canada? I don't know outside of Canada. I assume it's well. ESA is Ontario, ESA, right? ESA is just Ontario. Yeah. So I just are are things different in other provinces? I can only assume that BC would probably just be as strict, if not stricter. BC, yes. Okay. Alberta probably not far behind. Um, I bet you Quebec does whatever the fuck they want, huh? Probably. <laughs> 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 like the, the East Coast uh, doesn't even have provincial inspectors. Like uh, a friend of mine is doing a development in Prince Edward Island, and he's like, there's only Ontario inspectors. 
They so have no inspectors in the East Coast. Well, on, on the island, they have just provincial inspectors. They don't have they don't have an ESA or a governing body like other provinces because it's so small. I guess they don't need it, right? <laughs> so everyone listening, go build over there. Yeah. Uh, you get away with a bunch of stuff. But okay, so back to the melee because that's actually a really really good point because all these people are now buying these different appliances that have these different kinds of setups that we're used to. So, like another example would be like an extractor fan, right? Some of them that are plug-in, you have to leave. Like I think the microwave is the only exception. Microwave's or, always a plug-in, no? Yes. Yeah. Sorry, that's the one time you can have a plug ready in a cabinet. That's the one of the. Few so they allow that. They allow that because they understand that the microwave is hung from the cabinet below, and you got to put the receptacle somewhere. And you can't. It's it's too difficult to unscrew the microwave to get out to get to the plug because they're concerned about plugs inside a cabinetry because you can plug something in while close the door and exactly. then it can that's, be overheated. That's an ongoing. I, I get that rule. I totally understand yeah. that rule because you get a lot of stupid clients who want to plug in their water picks and they want the plug inside the cabinet. And I'm like, this is going against everything ESA is saying. You can't do yes. this, right? I don't care if it's a water pick, right? So you try to explain to them, but they don't care. And then they modify it later on. It's their home, their castle, right? This is another interesting question that I want to ask you. Why is it that the ESA allows homeowners to do their own wiring? And why is it that the permit fees are the exact same price to a homeowner as it is to a person who's got a master license that has studied and done all this work? That's a little bit of unfair justice there. Yes. And from what I've heard, homeowners love to play with electrical the most. Seems like. Play but, is the key word. But I don't know. Can they can they pull like do they can they pull the full scope of a project or yeah. can they yeah, so they can do the whole house. Yeah. If they choose to. If if the house the dwelling is under their name, they can do it. It's a castle rule. So they can do their own service operation. Yes, they can. Want. They still have to pull the permit. They still have to they have the inspections. They still have to have the inspector there running through everything. They have to do all that stuff. And if things not done right, then they're told how to change it. And then so here's the problem that I have. Inspectors, in my opinion, are wasting their time because they have to now educate the homeowner how to do it properly, which basically takes them away from inspecting proper jobs from master electricians that have done the schooling, have done the work. And there should be two departments in ESA for that. Handling it for the monkeys that are homeowners that want to do it for themselves, and then another inspector that handles the professionals. I think there should be a line drawn in that sand because it's not fair that you guys are treated the same way. I think they're far more harsh to the homeowner than they are to us just because, you know, like you're not dealing with someone that's trained properly. Maybe they have some knowledge. Maybe they read a book, you know, how to wire a house. But, you know, they don't know everything. But they're allowed to, okay, so they're allowed to pull their permit and then they can have all their wires stapled into that clip system and it could look like crap and the inspector will still pass it. It's done. So they're not making things proper. They're still running everything the way it's supposed to be, I guess, technically speaking, it's supposed to be done. But I don't like the fact that inspectors have to spend their time to educate the homeowner because the homeowner is going to be asking them a million questions. That's time that's being taken away from that inspector to work on your job site. That's true. So that's why I think there should be two you know, offices or whatever handling the homeowners and one and then handling the pros. I, I think in everything that's in the construction, there should be a line drawn. I think if you want to be a DIYer and you want to do all your own shit and whatever that, then you get this kind of inspector. If you want to be a professional, you get this inspector. 
And that's it. I think the building office should be that way. ESA should be that way. I think everybody should be that way. I think at Home Depot, there should be a whole section of the building or whatever. should be just for pros and nobody else other than a pro should be in there. I think there should be a line segregation. I don't care. I think no, I agree. Because I, I think we we deserve it. I also don't think a homeowner should be able to take a permit for a full scope. Like if he's redoing his kitchen or a bathroom or something, then okay. But if you're building a new house, you're able to pull a permit for the whole thing? It doesn't seem right to me. All I've, told, I've been told is the castle rule. It's their dwelling. They can do whatever they want with it, right? I've heard that too. I just I didn't know the extent of what they can do. I thought they were, their ability to pull a permit was limited, but maybe not. So will they be able to pull like pull a meter? They won't they wouldn't no, be no, able no. to no. We can't touch a meter. Well no no I mean okay, not upgrade a meter, I mean. So they okay. wouldn't be able to upgrade a panel. There's no way a homeowner would be allowed so. to There's be upgrade no a panel. Way. No. Because that's dangerous. Yes. That's dangerous to the utility company as well. Yes. Right? If they don't connect things properly. So maybe we're just talking about just rewiring but even rewiring, man, like that's dangerous as well too. Like I don't really like that. Uh, so that's what I'm saying is that ESA has all these rules, but then they're also very relaxed on a lot of these rules, depending on the end user. And I think it's not fair that homeowners get this privilege. I think that they should be forced to hire a professional to do it and just accept it. Yeah, I agree. But I mean, at that point, they're saying, well, you guys are charging too much, right? So whatever, at 40 bucks an hour and a master of 70 bucks an hour, you're charging too much. I'm like, do you want your house to catch on fire? You want yeah. it to run properly because homeowners will put like what 50 circuit 50 items on one circuit right yeah and then you, you can see right away the way the, they cut the wires into the boxes how they strip them how they make connections <laughs> you know you, you see it like that ah, this wasn't anyone <laughs> like a professional person that did this yeah you see it right away and i'm sure that's with every trade you know it's I'm, I'm laughing because i've seen it so many times and i can't stand it i also have the same bone to pick with um uh, tssa when it comes to gas Homeowners can modify their gas. It doesn't matter. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, they can. Because I had, I had a client who actually did it right in front of my eyes, and then I went to go complain to the TSSA, and they said they're allowed to do that. It's their dwelling. And I'm like, they're messing around with gas that was signed off by another professional that put his tag on it saying that he did At this that work. At that point in time. Yes. Not after the fact. But after the fact, he changed it because he says, I don't want it this way. I want to add this other line. So he just decided to add another line so what do you think is going to happen when there's a problem well see this is where tsa where i just looked at them and i just said i want this on the record man because they only get involved if the house explodes right so i'm here to tell you that there's a potential that it might explode because someone's modifying the gas line in a house because it's under their name but you guys can't and even if they were to knock on the door and they asked them can we come in and the homeowner says no they're not allowed to step inside Oh, really? And I'm like, then what's the purpose of your organization? Because it seems like you guys are useless, right? Yeah. Only unless the house explodes, then they get involved. Then there's an investigation. Then you go through a whole shit. So I left my name. I left my information. And I said, if the house explodes, then fine. I'll be a witness. And I'll let you guys know that I gave you guys a heads up before this happened. But that's why I mean, it's just like, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. But I'm just worried for the guy that was there and with, with his ticket and everything. He wasn't happy about it. Because now your ass is kind of on the line, right? And that could be an electrician. That could be you know, whomever. We, we documented everything. Like we documented, took pictures. Like it was just, it was like, listen, we're just going to cover our ass. That's all we're going to do. It's their house. They can do whatever they want with it, right? That's what I have a problem with. I think there should be limitations Yeah, at that I point. Agree. 
So, okay, what are what are most electricians out there doing wrong these days, or if they are doing wrong, other than not having a broom and dustpan and <laughs> that whole? I, this weekend must have been an interesting weekend because so many people kept on sending me that video that was on social media about uh, the site super showing the electrician a yes. broom, and then they started freaking out, saying, "What is that? No, 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 no! What is that? No, no, don't, don't, no! I don't want that! I don't need that!" <laughs> uh. I don't know, to be honest with you. Maybe just cutting corners, just, you know, cheaping out a material. How do you cheap out a material today? Everything's so expensive. Everything's so expensive, yeah. Like, you can't even buy spools now of certain wire because it's way too expensive to buy that wire. Um, but, I mean, even, like, 14.2 is just ridiculously expensive for a spool now. It's just... it's just It goes so quick. 150 meters is gone in a heartbeat. Oh, it's gone. Like uh, on a typical house, you're averaging two, three rolls a floor. You know? That's a lot of money. That's a that's a G note right there. Yeah, easy. That's a thousand dollars right there, just the material. Then you think about the fourteen three for all the smoke alarms and three ways and crap like that. Then you think about uh, twelve two for all the kitchen circuits. You know, depending how big the kitchen is. So explain this to me with ESA because this is becoming a nice ESA show. Homeowner, you guys put in the proper smoky. Yes. The trifecta smoky. Homeowners come in and remove all them, put nest in, which doesn't have the strobe. Yes. As far as I know, do it, is, are they dual? Are they carbon and smoke? I think they're dual. I think they're dual, but they don't have the strobe. No. So homeowner takes those out, puts those in. Now the house is illegal? Well, technically, if, I mean... Say you're, you're, you're doing a new build or an addition, right? Um, you, you now have to upgrade the whole smoke alarm system. So you put all these devices everywhere. Yeah. And you need them there to pass your building inspection, right? Yeah. That's part of it. Yeah. So now it's... it's actually, yeah, technically it's part of the OBC. It's yeah. not just me, right? It's yeah. not just CSA. It's also the building inspection. Yeah, exactly. So after the fact now, if they start removing these things, then like you no longer meet the building code and the electrical code. So... You know, if there's a fire and someone doesn't get out, who's, you know. Who's to blame? Who's to blame? It would be the homeowner. Well, you would think, right? Well, you would hope. It makes sense, right? I'm trying to figure out why. I was. The other thing is, so I'm actually doing a rental property. And the first thing I said to the electricians is that we want to put a pony panel in there. Okay. It kind of made sense to me that everything electrical in the unit goes right to a source that has they have access to it right but here's the problem that i have so now you're not allowed to put a 60 amp breaker panel inside a closet no technically not so it has to be facing out of the closet yes i said okay fine because we were having a discussion about this i go i'm standing inside the closet looking at the back of the panel now and i'm like this is the ideal spot where a tenant is going to drive a three-inch screw in to hang stuff along that back wall. And it won't be hard for a three-inch screw to go through that panel and hit a breaker and all of a sudden create an accident. Yes. So wouldn't it make more sense to have the panel inside the closet so then you're well aware that that's a panel there and you shouldn't be screwing into there because you wouldn't be putting any hooks on the outside of the closet. But technically, um, so long as it's not a closed closet... I mean, if it's just a storage room, it should be okay. If the moment you put a door on it, though, it becomes a closed closet, right? 
True, but if you still have like, what what's the difference if it's in a mechanical room with the where the furnace is as well, right? It's I'm on your side, man. Uh, I'm just <laughs> thinking like logically, like within the rule, so long as you maintain that meter dist working distance in front of it, and it's it's not a closed closet where you're hanging your your jackets and clothes and stuff. I mean, I've seen panels in a in a bathroom, you know, in in a yeah, we've we've had a funny situation where, and it was passed. The panel was located where then they put in a bathroom and it was inside of a shower. Are you kidding me? Really? Yes. And my dad called the ESA for consultation. He's like, what the fuck do I do here? And like, I don't know. I can't remember what you ended up doing with it. If you flipped it to another wall or I, I can't remember what the solution was. How did it originally, it must have not got It a wasn't a bathroom originally. Oh, and they just built it after. Man, wouldn't you be like scared shitless to take a shower inside of a shower that has a breaker panel right next to the shower? The enclosure in front of it or something to kind of, but I don't know. It just it was stupid. It was stupid all around. So with the panel back, I, I, my first thought now is I have to go get quarter inch steel, a plate of it, the size of the panel and all the feeds that are coming in. Yes. To cover that whole back area because I know someone will try to drive a hook or a screw or something behind. I just know it. So, I mean, for, and that means I have to skin that back wall with that quarter inch panel for steel, protect it, and then just fill it in with quarter inch material to just bring the thickness of the wall. Then it gives me basically assurance that there's no way. They would need a drill. They would need a certain tool to you get to through really that. Try to yeah, to get through that, right? And then they'll quickly realize you can't drill through this section of it. But that's what I think you have to do to protect it. But I, I think that it would make more sense to flip it the other way around, and I wouldn't have to put that inch please but i'm doing that because of i've got a concern yeah so there's all kinds of little things i mean there's like i'm trying to think about other little electrical things that kind of came up here and there and there's i guess drivers are a fancy talk nowadays because of where you can park drivers how many drivers you can do but then how is esa becoming on that whole world so let's say balance lighting you know they're specific to where they want it to be accessible so we've typically located under the, the kitchen sink. We bring all the low-voltage yeah. cables there. You bring a feed from a switch there. It's all hardwired. It's not a plug or anything, and then they're usually okay because you open the cupboard, you can get to it. It's not a receptacle. It's not something else you can plug into. Got it. And they're usually okay with that. Well, they're hardwired too, right? They're hardwired, yeah. Yeah. Some guys um, mounted somewhere behind the fridge so you can pull the fridge out get to it. Some guys will hide it under the kickboard so you can remove kickboard and get to it but i think sink so cabinet is kind of the best location. i think that's the best yeah easiest the inspector's usually happy they don't have a problem with it and that seems to be the easiest thing to do are we getting i guess clients are getting very very low voltage savvy right like they're just asking everything to be low voltage accent lighting here accent lighting there all kinds of stuff right yes especially if you get a more custom high kitchen they have all these like like hapel makes fancy you know like uh undermount lights that are flush with they get milled into the underside of the cabinet. Yeah, I've seen you know, like well, yeah. So there's more and more of that. But then here's the thing is that I know that the, the marketing is really genius on everything where they um, they sell it, how cool it looks and what you need it for your fixture and all this other, you need it for your design, you need it for everything, right? The problem is that when it fails, if it's not properly done by a professional and if it's not set up for accessibility to maintain or replace it's going to be a nightmare later on. Yeah. And you need to understand, like, 
the catalogs that these manufacturers make, they're constantly changing. So if yeah. you put it in the kitchen today, five years from now, when a strip burns out, they probably don't make that anymore. It's a different model, right? So the color might be different. The waters might be different. You know, usually the voltage stays the same, but things change over time. So how do you solve those issues then? So now you're going to have one strip that's brighter than the other ones, right? Because it's new, the other ones are old. Which is an eyesore. Right? I, so I hate you have that. to swap out everything, at least, at least the LED strips. And why can't they, you know, all the diodes, whatever, all the dots, like has, has a manufacturer, have you guys come across a manufacturer that has designed something that is easy to cut and reconnect and extend? Because those little snap-in things, man. Oh, I hate them. They suck. Like on a, a different level, yes. suck. It doesn't matter if you're using cheap ones or expensive ones. They all suck. They all really. So they all have the same problem. They're getting better. The high-end ones are getting easier. The connectors are, they're constantly revising things. So sometimes even the strip might be the same, but the connectors are different, right? And the, the drivers change. They change the shape of the connectors for the driver over time. So what you had 10 years ago won't work anymore. You have to replace it, right? It's so frustrating, man. Like I, I, I was just freaking out. I was like double checking, triple checking, cutting exactly where I'm allowed to cut. Cut, and then all of a sudden I'm, I'm grabbing the adapter and I'm snapping it exactly the way it's supposed to be, and it's like not working. Yeah. I'm like, what the hell's going on here? Oh, you need to get a little bit more of the metal part. It's got to be exposed. And I'm like, dude, man, I cut exactly where it's supposed to be cut. This is frustrating, man. It is, but it's frustrating to you guys because that at that point is it's time and time and money, right? That's all it is. You can only charge time and money for that. Yeah. And then homeowners, it's it's no different than you guys setting up a light fixture, right? You're charging time. That's all it is. And then, sure, I'll install your light fixture. It's got a thousand pieces. Uh, same thing with the the accent lighting. So, that, uh, yeah, that's something I started doing over time because, you know, sometimes the finishing process is so freaking long because the designer ordered a specific light fixture and it's how many months out, you know, or the homeowners are, are behind them buying stuff or... Things sometimes drag out in the final stages of a job, I find. And it's like, sure, you can you can kind of estimate the hours it takes to do all the plugs and switches and stuff like that, because that's standard. You know, you roughed yep. it in. Yeah. But like you said, light fixtures, the, the valance stuff, the low-voltage stuff has to be separate, I think. It's getting crazy. I want to ask you some of the fines that are associated with ESA. What's the typical fine that ESA has been handing out that they always get you guys on? I don't know. We don't get really deep. No? We've, okay. we've had a good reputation with them for a while, and we don't really have problems. But uh, I don't know. I mean, they can be in the thousands of dollars. I'm not really sure. Okay. My dad gets the monthly update of how many guys they caught, how many guys they find. They have that? They do that? They have a newsletter that they send out. They actually put the name of the business and the name of the person? No, they won't disclose that, but they'll say, like, statistics for this month. We caught these guys doing this, and they'll, they'll give examples. And how much they were fined. Guys working illegally without a master's license or a contractor's license. How much they got. I, I don't know the numbers. I don't really pay attention to it. But they do publish like a quarterly or monthly newsletter. I didn't know that. That's interesting. I want to ask you about. Um, so I know that there's a lot of master electricians that I guess are semi-retired. And they will loan out their license to do jobs. But the ESA is not cracking down on that. No. Yeah, some guys do do that. Right. So then but the only risk for that is that if they do a bad job and then it doesn't get passed, then it goes on that master electrician's license. 100%. Yeah, they're, they're liable, right? So yeah. Unless maybe it's someone they, that apprenticed under them and is trying to go on their own, you know, and they know their work 
or they stay on top of it and they monitor their work, maybe it's okay. That's not something we do. We always, we've had clients that got caught because they were doing a, an extension or renovation and then somehow someone cut on that they did their own wiring and now they want us to pull a permit to cover their ass. I can't help you. I'm sorry. I didn't do this work. I, yeah. I didn't put my ass on the line for you. So what is it in that situation? Is they showed up and they said, well, who's the... Yeah, some, somehow they got caught. Sometimes they'll, they'll come by uh, if there's a bin in front of the house. You know, They'll just come in, pop in. If they're on the street doing an inspection, they'll pop in and see if there's a permit pulled. <laughs> there's been instances like that before. You know, Well, they got caught somehow, right? But then it's foolish of you to attach your because you have no you first of all you'd have to spend the time to go through everything to make sure that it's proper yes and it's not worth your while at that point right no I don't think so and also uh, you can't find everything right yeah you know you don't know what's what's behind the walls sometimes how they ran it through the framing you don't know if they nicked the cable somewhere if they used the right you know you, you never know yeah and why am I gonna take the whole brunt of the consequences. Because you don't want to hire me in the first place. They didn't hire you in the first place, Chris, because they didn't want to spend the money on it to do it properly. I I'm telling you over and over, man. I always, I will always go back to blaming the homeowner because they're trying to save money wherever they possibly can, and it's not necessarily that they're saving money. They're just allocating that money elsewhere, usually at the design stage, right? They would want a certain fixture, a certain appliance, a certain anything that just costs more. And their first go-to is go to the trace person to get a discount or reduce your fee or all that kind of crap. Because that money is not being saved, it's being allocated. Right. Which is not fair to us. So they shouldn't be having that conversation with us. They should just either pony up the money or buy a cheaper product. Yep. On that stage, on the design stage of things, right? Or reduce your scope. Reduce your scope or postpone. I got clients right now that are uh, finally at a point where they're going to do a job and uh, they've taken a few years. They, they basically waited. They just said, listen, we don't want to pull the trigger until we have all the funds that we know we need to make this happen. And I'm like, you guys are far and few, man. This is far and few. Like, this is not the norm. Like, clients want to just pull the trigger right away and get it all started, even though they don't have the full budget for it. You guys have waited five years before you pull the trigger here, which now you know you, you need a decent budget. And now I'm introducing them to trades. A lot of guys that have been on the show, and I'm introducing them. I go, listen, I vouch. Go ahead. I'll connect you guys and talk, and then they can give you a quote and then go from there, right? So that's the way clients should be. Yes, I agree. So I want to ask you, your dad started the business. You got into it. You're eventually going to take over the business. Where do you see the business going in the next 10, 20 years? I like to grow. I like to hire some people on. I'm reluctant to hire people because we go through, you know, spells where we're busy, where we're slower. And, you know, people have families, people have mortgages, bills to pay. I don't want to tell them to sit at home for the month because we're slow. Of course. So I want to build up enough of a network and enough of a pipeline of work where I can hire on a few guys confidently and give them a permanent position. So that's the plan there, that's right? That's the plan, yes. Are there a good pool of guys out there right now that are looking? Are they having a hard time trying to get some work? Or are they just trying to have a hard time trying to get the right person to work for? Uh, so this time last year, around this time, mid-February, um, my father went in for a quintuple bypass. Oh. And that's when I resigned from the full-time engineering job. And I'm like, fuck it, that's it. It's time yeah. to go. I've been preparing for a couple of years I bought a van, was getting tools, kind of getting ready to leave, and the time came where I had to. So 
we had these two big jobs on the go and I was trying. I was putting feelers out to try and find somebody. I had a guy calling me that doesn't, doesn't have a car. He's like, I can take a bus there. I'm like, that's great, man. But like, I need you there for seven, not at 10. You know? like, yeah. Um, it's difficult to be a tradesperson on the bus. It's hard to interview someone over the phone, right? Like, I feel for you. I know, you know, you're kind of starting out. You got to get, get into it, make some money and everything else. But I need someone to produce for me because I'm drowning in work. Yeah. You know? But the other problem is that, like, listen, man, my very first pickup truck that I ever bought was like $3,000, man. It was a piece of shit Nissan. It got me from point A to B. It wasn't the best. It was tinny doors. It was just like there was no features. But everyone's looking at pickup trucks for $100,000. They're putting orders in for a brand new truck and a brand new van and a brand new. Uh, you don't need any of that shit. You just need four wheels that are going to get you to point B. That's all exactly. you need. Get a little kind of box just to it's cheap on gas get you around transit something simple man that you can throw in a four-foot ladder listen every electrician's got a four-foot ladder man that's all you need so you can get into do condo work that's but even all. even an apprentice you don't need a ladder you just need some hand tools and a, and a drill combo that's all set. it is yeah that's all you need i'm curious chris what are you milwaukee no we hang out no no way you guys are makita yeah, yeah, you're, you're on the money. You're Makita. You're Polish, man. Come on. I, I totally forgot the Polish side of it. No. I would say we're 70% Makita, 30% Walt. <laughs> That's what I thought, man. My dad's, my dad's all Hilti. He's all Hilti? All oh, industrial. Yeah. That's why he's Hilti, man. Of course he's yeah, He had a Makita burning. It would be burning out on him, getting frustrated with it, repairing it, changing brushes, changing the gearbox. And at one point, he's like, I'm done with this shit. No, he's industrial, man. That's why he needs Hilti. Yeah. Hilti's in their own class on that. They're nice, but I just find they're they're too heavy and cumbersome. Like they're good tools. I'll say that they're ugly looking tools. Yeah. Like they're not cool looking to they do a great job. They're really good tools, but they're not the cool looking tool. Right? But I guess I mean when it comes to tool, you want a tool that's gonna do a job. Yeah. I don't care what it looks like. But then again, Makita's got some funky looking tools that I don't want to touch, right? <laughs> <laughs> just like <laughs> <laughs> so, all right uh what else do we want to share man i know that you you first reached out to me and you had a situation i don't know if you want to talk about it but it was a situation that i think every tradesperson gets into yeah i don't want to get into it no don't, don't get into it detail. if you don't want to get into it but i mean it's just like listen guys there's always a, a negative side of the business and uh if you get yourself in a situation like this the best thing you could do is like what you did just reach out to others and have a conversation about it because it didn't matter what I did, the situation was getting worse and worse. And yeah. I didn't even know how to react anymore to this person, how to speak to them. Yeah. And the advice you gave me was spot on, and I haven't heard since. Good. Thank God. So Good. Because from what you told me, I was like, listen, I, I've been down this road before. I've handled some of those situations well. I've handled other situations poorly. Um, but every trace person is going to get into this kind of a negative situation. And, and mostly I'm going to blame the men you're going to want to have your ego up from front and center. And, and that's the worst thing you can do. Just think logically long-term. That's all you got to think about. Right. And, uh, and be the professional, stay the professional and just go down that road. And if they want to go that negative road or whatever, let them go that way and don't feed into that shit. Yeah. Just move on. You know that you're a good tradesperson. You know, you do quality work. You know, you built a strong brand that these are the three objectives that you're trying to do when you get into this industry. So just continue doing that. You're going to make enemies. That's just part of the business. You're going to have a lot of friends, but you're going to make some enemies simple. So you handle it well, you did it well. So then it's just like, and I, I definitely encourage anybody that's going through it or will go through it. 
reach out to somebody that you trust for some guidance and they will give you some guidance. I guarantee you they will. So uh, I want to let everybody know. Yeah, so Chris here, Richardson Electrical Services, www.richardsonelectrical.ca, Chris at richardsonelectrical.ca, and on Instagram is Richardson underscore electrical underscore services. You ready for the 12 questions, man? Yep. What is your favorite construction word? I would say approved or passed. <laughs> Why are the inspectors like some such a-holes and some really nice? I don't know. Why is there such a black and white world when it comes to that? Depends what mood they're in, what they're having in the personal life. I, I don't know. See, that's, that's a good point you bring up because everybody's got a personal shit going on in their lives. And it will affect their entry on that job site and what they're inspecting. And that's not fair. You should leave your personal life outside of what you're inspecting as a professional life. Yeah, that goes for anybody. 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 Trader, anybody, or inspector. What is your least favorite construction word? Change. <laughs> what turns you on in construction? Um, I'm happy when you take something that's on a drawing when a client doesn't really understand. They read it but don't really understand or visualize it, and you deliver, and they're happy. And everyone's happy. Everybody wins. Far and few. Far and few. What turns you off in construction? Um, indecisive clients, indecisive engineers, um, when people are just are not willing to make a, a decision. Nobody wants to commit to a decision, eh? No. You commit, you're, you're liable for it, right? There's a con consequence down the line. I think more and more tradespeople should just do work on their own place, and then you'll see how fast work gets done gets done pretty quickly because there's a lot of decisions that are made right away there's no committee by decisions there's none of that crap right and then there's none of uh what are my friends family and are my network on social media going to think of what i just did you know what i mean like who gives a shit it's your house do whatever you want to do but you know i agree with you what's your favorite curse word fuck <laughs> and in polish it's kurva that's exactly it <laughs> what is your favorite vehicle anything in the world uh, probably a Porsche GT3 RS. I could see that. What's your least favorite vehicle in the world? Uh, probably a smart car or a Fiat 500. You know what? I like the old Fiat 500s. I can't stand the new ones, man. I can't stand them, but that's just me. What construction sound or noise do you love? I love hearing an impact driver. Really? Yeah, I've always liked it. Or like the old school mechanics, pneumatic tools. I always loved that sound. I get older, man. That's such a piercing sound. Very piercing sound now. Uh, what construction sound or noise do you hate? Probably a multi-tool or a compressor. Yeah, especially a DeWalt multi-tool. <laughs> <laughs> what profession other than your own would you like to attempt one day? Um, auto mechanics or maybe mill writing, something mechanical. Might have to change your tools a bit, huh? Yes. Tiny bit. What profession would you not like to do? Um, anything to do with sewage or drainage. A hard job big money but it's harsh uh last question if heaven exists what would you like to hear god say when you arrive at those pearly gates you made it <laughs> chris man thanks so much for being on the show man really Thank appreciate you, you taking the time and coming out here and chatting more electrical stuff and, and all you inspectors out there you guys can send your letters to me i won't read them i don't care so uh, we're just having a conversation here chris again how do you novarat novarat navrot 
Richardson Electrical Services, Master Electrician, uh, www.richardsonelectrical.ca, Chris at richardsonelectrical.ca, and IG Richardson underscore electrical underscore services. Right here, Angela. Thank you.